Good morning. You know, a few weeks ago when we talked about everyone needs a goat, everyone needs a scapegoat, Steve Brown's our scapegoat this morning. We're going to blame him for all the sound problems. Whether it's his fault or not, we're going to blame him. No, I'm sorry if you're visiting this morning that you have to endure some of those issues, but we promise to get those rectified as quickly as possible. We are in the midst of a series called One Word. We've been doing it all year where we take one word, and for that week we study that word, and it all culminates on Sunday for us talking about that word. And of course, the word this Sunday morning is propitiation. I'm sure all of you use that word in casual conversation all the time, don't you? I'm sure that word came up this week as you're just casually talking to one of your coworkers. Propitiation gets inserted into the conversation, right? Actually, even though we may not use this word very often, even though we may not completely and totally understand what it means, even though we know it's a biblical word and a word that we run across over and over again in the New Testament, we probably don't fully grasp what it means and how it applies to our salvation, but I would guess all of you at one time or another have propitiated. Think of it this way. Guys, you ever make your wife mad? You have a conversation, it turns into a heated argument, and you leave the house in anger. You decide you're going to get in your car and drive around a little bit to cool off. You pull up to a stoplight, and there's a guy selling flowers on the corner. And it hits you. You feel guilty. You feel bad. So you, you go and you buy some flowers from this gentleman. You get back in the car, and you immediately head home, and you walk in the door. Your wife is still fuming and you hand her flowers, and she immediately gives you a hug and a kiss, and everything's fine. You know what you did in that moment, guys? You propitiated your wife. You turned away her wrath. That's what propitiation is. Simple. It's turning away the wrath of God. If you want a more biblical definition, you can turn to Genesis chapter 32. And in Genesis chapter 32, we find the continuation of the story of Jacob and Esau. And you might remember that Jacob tricked Esau with this savory stew. Esau sold the, the riches of his birthright. Jacob conned him into that. And so Jacob flees for his life. And after 20 years, he decides that he wants to reconcile with his brother. And so Jacob sends word to Esau and basically asks, Would you meet me at such and such place at such and such time? And the messengers come back, and they tell Jacob, they've got some good news and we've got some bad news. The good news is Esau has agreed to meet you. The bad news is he's bringing 400 soldiers with him. So let's read what it says, starting in verse 13 and following. It says, Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in the front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. 
Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. Do you see what Jacob was doing? He was trying to appease his brother. That is what we call propitiation. Jacob was trying to turn away the anger of his brother by offering him gifts. Now, this is an Old Testament passage, but it's really foreshadowing to what we see concerning Jesus as the propitiation for us. His sacrifice turned away the wrath of God. Now, really, this is an archaic word. It's a word that may be difficult to say and maybe to understand, but really the definition is pretty simple. It is the satisfaction of justice or the appeasement of anger. It is the turning away of wrath through the offering of a gift. That's what Jacob tried to do in offering Esau gifts, and that's what we attempt to do as husbands when our wife is mad at us, and it's what Jesus has done through the atoning sacrifice in turning away the wrath of God. I believe the, uh, the concept of propitiation is best spelled out for us in one of the least read books of the Bible. We looked at it a few weeks ago, Leviticus chapter 16. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but look at what it says in Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 11. It says, Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring the blood inside the veil and do with it its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And we could go on, but I think you see what we're getting at here. Aaron's job as the high priest, his duty, his obligation, was to turn away the wrath of God. You know, the Ark of the Covenant contained three items, and you probably remember that from Bible class when you were young. It contained the Ten Commandments, it contained some manna, and it contained Aaron's rod. And when God looked down at the Ark of the Covenant, he saw the broken law. But when he saw that blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, he saw atonement. You know, it's hard to watch an animal suffer, isn't it? If you find it easy to watch an animal suffer, you probably don't have a soul. You probably don't have a touchable conscience. It's hard to watch an animal suffer, even if it's legitimate. Even if you're a hunter and, and you know, you wound an animal and you have to finish it off, it's still difficult to watch it suffer, right? I can remember many years ago when I was coaching in Charlotte, Arkansas, they had a, a holiday, a school holiday known as Deer Day. 
the first day of deer season, they turned out school because they realized, you know, several years before that, that none of the kids are going to come if they have school. So they turned out school and they had a recognized holiday known as Deer Day. Well, certainly I'm going to take advantage of that as well. And my daughter Keely was five at the time and she begged me to, to get to come with me. And so I took her for her first time deer hunting. When it was all said and done and we had the deer strung up and we were, you know, gutting it and all those things, getting it ready to process, she flipped out. I never imagined that it would haunt her as much as it did. I mean, it made such an impression on her. She cried, she bawled. I mean, we were doing this to Bambi, she thought, you know. And it's hard to watch an animal suffer. I can, I can remember last year, you know, uh, Blake, our youth and family minister, was going to slaughter one of his bulls uh, so that they could live on the meat. And, and he didn't need our help, but we volunteered to come help him. That's just a tough thing. I mean, even though it's a legitimate reason, you're using the meat, you're eating the meat, and the meat's really good, by the way. He's brought it to us several times. It's still hard. It's hard to watch an animal suffer. Can you imagine the people at this time? Before you assume that the people just thought, well, this is the way it's done. God's commanding it. You know, this is just how it works. I'm not so sure that the people were, were immune to seeing the animal suffer and go through the slaughtering for the sacrifice. I'm sure when they made the connection between the animal suffering and the fact that it was doing so because of their sins, that had to resonate with them, don't you think? I would think that that would bother you, knowing that this animal is suffering because of your sin, that it has to be this way, that atonement has to be made. Now think of the magnitude of such when it's a human being. Instead of an animal, now it's a human being. And think that you're standing at the cross. You're of Jewish descent. You know all about the Day of Atonement and what it means and what it represents. And there on that cross is a person writhing in pain with nails through the wrists and their feet. After undergoing the flogging and the mocking and the ridicule and all that, they're writhing in pain and you're standing there knowing that they're going through all of this because of you. It's a whole different deal when it's a person rather than an animal. It's tough to watch an animal suffer. It's worse to watch a human being go through that, all because you have sinned. You know, inside the holy place, in a different part known as the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And as we said, the Ark contained those three items. And when God looked at the Ark of the Covenant, he saw the broken law of Israel. But when he saw that blood of the animal sprinkled on the mercy seat, he saw atonement. The problem was this had to be done every year. This had to be repeated regularly, right? Animals had to continually die. But when you see and read about this in Leviticus chapter 16, when you see Aaron sprinkling the blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat to appease God, you know what you call that? Propitiation. That's it. That is the definition of propitiation. Now look to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you see it? Do you see what's happening? Jesus is the high priest. 
He is the high priest now, and he is making atonement for the people. He satisfies the justice of God. You look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. So Jesus is the great high priest. But this is interesting because he's also the sacrifice. It's as if the high priest is sprinkling his own blood on the mercy seat. Not the blood of a ram or a goat or a bull or anything like that. He's sprinkling his own blood on the mercy seat. He is the high priest who is also the sacrifice. Beautiful imagery here. The difference, of course, is this is not a perpetual thing. This doesn't have to be regularly repeated. This is a one-time sacrifice. You'll also notice in 1 John chapter 2 that it mentions the word advocate. Do you know what that word means? Very simply, advocate means lawyer. So you picture yourself in the courtroom of eternity. And you are there, and the accuser is lobbying accusations in your direction over and over again. You did this. You didn't do this. And he's exactly right. And you're sitting there with no hope whatsoever, except that you have a defense attorney. You have one who's defending you, who is saying, don't listen to him. He's not telling you the truth. And that defense attorney opens up the book of life where all of, your rec- all of your sins are recorded page after page. And on each page are stamped in blood the words, not guilty. And so the a- accuser keeps lobbing these accusations and keeps saying, yes, but you're this, you did this, you didn't do that. And Jesus says, doesn't matter, did you see me die? Did you see the, the nail marks in my wrists and feet? You know I resurrected from the dead, right? And the accuser has nothing else to say because he knows he's defeated. He knows he can't win. The case rests, right? That's it. There's nothing else he can say. Of course, there was a time when it looked like Jesus wouldn't win. There was a time when he hung on the cross that it looked like sin and death would win. There is a a mysterious thing that happens on the cross that we, we really can't fully comprehend But there's a point where Jesus says, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? There was a moment when God's love wasn't erased for his son, but because Jesus took the sins of the whole world upon himself, and because a holy God has to exact payment for sin, there was a point where God's son was forsaken. Can you imagine standing at the cross, hearing those words, knowing that it was a human being that was dying in your stead instead of some animal? Think about that every time you partake of the Lord's Supper. Think about that every time you sin. Somebody had to pay the price. Jesus endured what you deserve. Propitiation is the price of God's wrath. Jesus took that wrath for us, and because he did, he, he took that, he took all of our sin. He took that wrath for us, and because he did, he appeased God. Read with me a little further in 1 John 2. Starting in verse 3, it says, By this we know 
that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought also to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am writing not I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven. You for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Again, these words come on the heels of what John wrote earlier about Jesus being our advocate, being our defense attorney taking on our sins and thus being our propitiation. So you have to take these words in that context. And what we see and what follows, basically really zeroing in on verses 12 and following, what we see is why is John writing these words? Why is he writing this? So that Christians living in this day and time could understand that there is assurance of salvation that you can be forgiven, that you can have the hope of heaven. It's as if he's saying, you will be victorious, but not you will be victorious, you already are victorious. You've already overcome him, you've already won, you've already beaten the devil. He just goes on writing about the one who knows God is the one who keeps his commandments, the one who doesn't, does not have the truth in him. He's already spoken about those who walk in the light versus those who walk in darkness. And he mentions the correlation between loving God and loving your brother. But then it's like he's saying, you're, you're, you're the one who loves your brother. You're the ones who love the Father. You're the ones who keep his commandments. You're the one who is walking in the light. And he is encouraging them not to listen to the false teachers around them who are trying to dissuade them from being faithful. He says... You are strong. You know the word of God. And you have overcome, so live like it. And here's what I think. I think the words that are written here by John could just as easily apply to our situation, our day and time as well, don't you? I I think there are many Christians who are struggling with assurance The wrath of God has been turned away, and yet we still feel like we are the object of his wrath. Like he's still going to strike us down at some point because we didn't cross a T or dot an I. But I want you to notice, if you go to chapter 5 of 1 John, notice verse 13 and following. It says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. And he goes on, but 
the major purpose for John writing this letter was so that Christians could have assurance of salvation. I mean, that's what he's saying here. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Not that you, you doubt it or, or that you know about 90%. No, that you may know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. We talked about this a few weeks ago on a Sunday night lesson. Not all sins are the same. Yes, all sin is an offense against a holy God. That is true. And if a sin is not atoned for, it incurs the wrath of God. That's biblical, right? We know that. However, not all sins are the same. There is a difference between a condemned sinner and a cleansed sinner. John makes that very point. 1 John 1, verse 7 and following. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Look, it would be great that once you became a child of God, once you were immersed in the waters of baptism, and once you rose to walk in newness of life, that you never sinned. But all of you know that just because you were baptized into Christ does not mean that you will never falter. Surely you can see that there is a difference in one who is walking in the light and one who is walking in darkness. Surely you can see that there is a difference in one who is trying to live a holy life but messes up from time to time and the one who is living outside of Christ and doesn't care one bit about living holy. Certainly you can see there's a difference in those two. Again, I'm not trying to make light of God's wrath, but I think over and over again in the church, sometimes we get sold the message that we can't be light on God's wrath. And I agree with that. But we can become unbalanced in our approach. Hellfire and brimstone sermons are great. Okay, There's a time and place for those. I don't like the song, There's an all-seeing eye watching you. If you want to sing that, that's fine. But I think it presents a message of God with some big eyeball in the sky waiting to catch you on a technicality so he can shoot a lightning bolt down and make you a french fry for all eternity. And that's not how God operates. That's not God. That's not the character of God. Now, a holy God despises sin. So sin that is not atoned for will have retribution. Remember Hebrews 10, 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Romans 1, 18 and 19, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. That's a New Testament passage, which means that God hasn't mellowed out in the, in the New Testament. It's not that God was wrathful and, and you had to fear him in the Old Testament, but he really chills out and relaxes in the New Testament. That's not true. God is the same. Grace gives us the illusion that God is just sitting back and is okay with sin. All sin, all offense against a holy God will demand retribution. But if you are a child of God, if you have been washed in the blood, you have turned away the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been appeased. And, and I think too often we miss that. 
We don't want to make light of God's wrath, and we want to maybe scare people into submission, and and we can be unbalanced in our approach. Listen, if you're a child of God, and you've been washed in the blood of Christ, God is not angry with you, okay? And I think that's what we think sometimes. I sinned, okay, I'm out. Okay, I repent, I'm back in, thank goodness. Okay, I sinned again, oops, I'm back out. If that's how eternal security works, then there is none. You don't have any. If we're constantly going in and out of Christ every time we sin, there's no assurance there, is there? What John wrote about doesn't make any sense. There is a difference in a condemned sinner and a cleansed sinner. If you are striving to walk in the light and to be holy as he is holy, God's not angry with you. But if you're living outside of Christ, if you are someone who has not had atonement made for your sin, let me tell you folks, and I I say this because I love you, you don't have any hope. That's not me talking, that's the Bible talking. And that doesn't doesn't excite me. I don't like to hear people when I say that go, amen. I don't need any angry amens there. That's sad. If you are outside of Christ, you don't have hope. I want you to have that hope. I want you to have that assurance of salvation. I want you to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven. But if the wrath of God has not been appeased, a holy God must punish sin. I encourage you to walk in the light if you're not already. And I want to leave you with some questions. First question, what can wash away my sins? You know the answer? What? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Here's another one. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me ask you another question. Are you washed in the blood? Has the wrath of God been appeased? Have you turned away his wrath? I know this is scary stuff, but it's truth. And we have to confront it. How far are you willing to go? Do you want the truth? Do you want to hear the truth? I hear some people say, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I I just, I can't go along with that. You can't go along with it? God said it. Are you willing to to confront the truth of Scripture? Well, I just can't believe. I know God said that. I just can't believe that. You can't believe it? You better Some difficult things that we read in the Bible, and one of the most difficult probably is the fact that we all must confront our sin and realize that we stand condemned unless and until we've been washed in the blood of Christ. Have you been washed in the blood? If you haven't, take care of that this morning. If you need the prayers and support of this church family, let us pray with you. If you're ready to study the Bible to learn what it means to be a child of God, then let's do that. But the most important thing in your life right now is to be right with God and to turn away his wrath. And if you have not done that, then don't leave here, don't go to lunch, don't eat, don't sleep, don't go to work, don't go to school tomorrow, don't do anything until you've taken care of that. Got it? Come now as we stand and as we sing.